Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Next up on our event schedule is the Planet Microcap Showcase Virtual on December 6th through 8th, 2022. On day one of the event, we'll be hosting the first ever Stock Pitch World Cup. Six global areas, six moderators, 24 total stock pitches. Joining us to moderate each special session is Maj Don representing the USA, Paul Andriola representing Canada. By the way, happy Thanksgiving to all our friends up in Canada. Fadi Diab representing Australia, Jason Hirschman representing Europe, and Kelvin Sito representing Asia. The only way to see the Stock Pitch World Cup is by registering now. And then on day two and three will be presentations from microcap management teams, as well as one-on-one meetings. Attendance for both events are complimentary for investors, and registration is now open for our virtual event. So to join us, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Jeremy Deal, managing partner of JDP Capital Management. I last chatted with Jeremy on the podcast back in September 2020, you know, back when uh, stonks only go up. <laughs> Safe to say the world is a little different since then, and uh, things have shifted quite a bit. We got to chatting offline about the current environment, specifically how he's approaching investing in the eye of the storm. Jeremy was an active investor back in the 2008-2009 time period, so I wanted his take on how things are right now compared to then. Also, he sent me a paper by Meritech Capital about durable growth, and he's using this framework to help him through this difficult investing environment. We wrap up talking about how Jeremy would deploy this framework in microcaps. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 246 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Deal. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. 
Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. All right, Jeremy, great to have you back. Thank you for being here. How are you doing, man? Hey, Robert, it's been a while. How's LA treating you? LA, you know, it's uh, the weather's turning. You know, I, I can't say that the leaves are changing or anything like that. But, you know, once it gets, once it goes from 85 to 75, you know, it, it's, it's warm, it's warm weather season or cold weather season now for us. I mean, are there at least two seasons in Southern California or is Actually, it really just one? No That's one. the debate. Here's really what happens. Once it gets to fall time, it becomes four seasons. The mornings is winter. And then, uh, you know, <laughs> mid-morning, mid it starts to become spring again. Midday is summer. And then, the you know, as you get to around uh, six or seven, it's uh, fall and then winter all over again. So yeah. uh, we, we experience it all, too. <laughs> there you go. Well, look, uh, Jeremy, it's been a couple of years since you came on the pod. We published that interview back in uh, September 16, 2020. I, what a... God, has it been that long? It has <laughs> been... Not only has it been that long, but like... Like it's kind of it's kind of a mind trip to think about like how much the world has yeah. shifted really even since then, you know. Um, so much has happened, just a lot. And you know, now we're kind of you know ever since then, you know, that was at a time when things were recovering very quickly. Stonks only go up, you know. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> the world the world wasn't fall, you know. Everything was going uh, through the roof, right? And now you know we're kind of in the the eye of the storm. So I, I wanted to kind of start yeah. off uh, because we were talking offline about this quite a bit, and we, yeah. you know, I, I'm kind of sad that I didn't press record then, but we're doing it now. So you know, okay. How, how would you say investing in this eye of the storm is kind of different than it was back in 2008, 2009 time? Well. Um... <sighs> I don't know. So I guess to start, you know, the, the eye of the storm back in 2008 started with banks and it started with, you know, financials. Um, and then it spilled over into other areas of the economy. And if you look at the companies, like you were to kind of go, you know, back in time and kind of back to plus or minus the bottom, whatever that was, call it, you know, sometime in 2008, uh, early 2009, you're like, okay, you surveyed the landscape. Um, you couldn't find a bank that was trading more than, let's say, you know, at the most 30% of book value, but many, many, many banks were trading at, you know, five, six, seven, 10% of book value, especially the small caps. Um, and this was because nobody believed what book value was, you know, these were toxic companies. They were, and it was an asset class that was untouchable. So nobody even wanted to do the work to figure out, well, hey, maybe there's value in this book value. It's just like, yeah, we can't touch that. And so, you know, insurance companies, um, home builders, for example, all down, you know, 80 plus percent. Um, and then that kind of spilled over. You had, you know, RV manufacturers, you had, you know, of course, the industrials. Ultimately, everything was down quite a bit. But the real eye of the storm at that time were financials and maybe home builders. Um, and, and yes, there were other things, there were commodity, there were other businesses that uh, were miners and stuff that were also down a lot. But I had to think about 
how, how I was looking at things back then, um, you know, as an eye, you know, looking at the eye of the storm and looking for distressed or really overvalued or undervalued companies that have been over oversold. Um, I where I was really focused were were uh, financials because that was the eye of the storm. Um, and again, it's kind of like technology businesses today. Um, they're, they're almost considered toxic. So today, when you survey the landscape, I mean, as we all know, the the, the sell off started it was led by technology, and a lot of it was kind of this, what people call non profitable tech. So for whatever reason, the business um, is just not you know, making a, a traditional profit. Um, that could be because they're just burning a bunch of money and they're dependent on the capital markets to stay alive and they really have no long-term future. Or it could be that they're very, very um, healthy companies living within their own internally generated free cash flow. And they had just a very unique runway of opportunity to reinvest 100% of their gross profit back into the business. So there's a very, it's a very wide group of, of companies um, that started out maybe let's say in the eye of the storm and then over over this last year it spilled over into pretty much anything that touches the consumer um I mean, you could run a screen on the number of really cheap stocks or companies trading below 10 times earnings or even you know less than five times ebit um, and there are many 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 to choose from i was just looking at the other i was just looking at the screen today i was surprised to see companies like general motors and and ford you know down 40 45 year to date and these are companies with big dividends these are companies that um you know I, I don't know what their prospects are i'm just saying as a you know just purely looking at the landscape what started with technology has now spilled out into into the streets so um you know, without doing any real research, just kind of surveying the landscape, it looks like a lot of things, there, there's the potential for a lot of things to be grossly mispriced. Um, but um, I don't know, that's kind of, that's kind of how I see it today. There's, you know, I, I'd say tech is probably anything asset light is probably the most over, or has, has probably been hit the most. And I'm sure within the rubble, um, there's probably a lot of great opportunities. Um, in addition to companies that probably shouldn't be public because they went public be a SPAC and they're just low quality businesses that should be private. Um, and there's some real winners in there. So um, when I look at the eye of the storm today, um, that's what I see. Very good. All right. Well, thank you for that quick overview because, you know, that leads us into the main reason that we wanted to talk to talk today because you, you, you sent me an email with this, this paper that I found absolutely fascinating, this idea of durable growth. Um, and yeah. this was this was written by uh, Meritech Capital, and yeah. you know when we were got, getting to talk about it online, it, it seemed like a great premise when you're when we're in times like these because we're yeah. because there are going to be quality businesses that are going to have year over year growth. Maybe it's not yeah. the same projected you know, 50% canker right. or, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah. Right. 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 Still right. Growing 20%, yeah. You know? <laughs> right. Hey, I'm, I'm dumbing this down quite a bit, by the way, because the, the paper was fantastic. I might ever, I'll, I'll put a link to it when I share this and, uh, and I'll put it in the description, but you know, for, for our audience, can yeah. you help us, help us firstly describe so, this idea and then we'll dig in a little yeah. bit. So we were in the process of doing a similar research piece when I came upon this paper and I just couldn't believe it. Now, I, I couldn't, I was really impressed with the paper. I was impressed with the framework. It's actually a simple paper. And um, 
we were actually doing the research, not just focused on one industry and, and they, Meritech's a venture fund, a big venture fund in the Bay Area. And so the, the purpose of, of this research for them was, was a little bit different. You know, they were, they're basically, I think the way it seems to me is they're kind of communicating to their portfolio companies, most of which are still private. Um, and they're outlining um, what does it look like in a, or how can you preserve um, value and, and create value in a market that's declining? Um, and so the, the point is to basically say, you know, to their portfolio companies, like you can still create a lot of value. Um, you just have to learn and, and figure out how to preserve, preserve that value. Um, and so the point of their paper was, um, look, we're going to look at the most successful public companies in software, as so they're calling them SaaS, but they're lumping them all in together. So SaaS is software as a service, um, and it refers to a specific business model where you sell a subscription, but looking at, at the companies that they use and 100, 100 plus companies in their, their research, their, it also includes just software companies other than just that, that particular business model. So they called them SaaS, but let's just say software. Um, so I thought it was interesting. What, what they wanted to point out to um, to their reader is that um, to achieve like the best returns long term, there's really only a few things that matter, and the most important thing is what they call durable growth. Now we've done a lot of research on a, a gen you know, generally around this topic. Um, we have you know at the Survivor and Driver Fund, we have kind of four components to what we look for in a business. And there, it's really around the ability of the business to continue um, to to grow. It's it's around it's around durability. We don't call it durable growth necessarily, but um, I thought that the way they put it together was was really nice. So the premise is really simple. They say, look, we're looking at a hundred plus companies, software companies since IPO. Um, so some going back a really long time, uh, some are really mature, like like Salesforce, for example. So several of these companies went public, you know, 20 plus years ago. And they 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 wanted to see in the research really what drove these amazing returns. So um, the top 25 uh, returning companies earned, I don't know, something like, you know, I guess I should look at the paper and see it. This, it was something like 13.5x or so um, return on average. And they wanted to see where did this return come from? Did this return come from growth? Did this return come from multiple expansion? What did it come from? And so their premise was, well, we're just going to basically look at these companies and see what, what are the components to the return? Um, how fast did revenue grow? Um, how, what was the multiple, what did the multiples look like when the company went public versus how they are today and compare those two, um, net of dilution. Um, so stock-based comp and just kind of see where it all pans out. And in the end, um, their conclusion was that the rate of growth has nothing to do with, um, the total return of a business over a long period of time. What has, what has, what matters is the durability of the growth. And um, I think that this is something that the market tends to miss because it's really easy to look at a business and just put a multiple on it or say it's overvalued or undervalued based on historical accounting. 
But at the end of the day, what really drives value and what they go to great lengths to show through their analysis is the durability of the growth. So not necessarily the growth rate, or actually definitely not the growth rate, but the durability of, of the growth in general. So if you think about like the opposite of this, um, if I told you I, I owned a business that was declining and, and, and had no growth, so it was declining, um, it would be maybe you could say, well, well, if it's alive for the next three years or four years, how much cash could we suck out of that business and, and discount that back and put some kind of hurdle rate on it? And maybe if you could wind it down net of fees, um, hey, that would be great. So that makes sense. But when it comes to the opposite, when it comes to a business with a really long runway and maybe it's not high growth, but it's durable growth for a really long time, that intrinsic value, yes, it's unknown, but it's it's a very, very long, it's a mis potentially a really large intrinsic value. And so that that is what um, the paper points out is kind of the driver is that ability to adapt, that ability to, it's what matters, the ability to adapt, the ability to control expenses and the ability to preserve durable growth, um, not necessarily high growth. So again, super, super interesting. And again, we're talking about asset light businesses where they really have a lot more control over their GNA and you know their their PL than than the businesses that were at the eye of the storm during the great financial crisis, like banks. I mean, banks can only fire so many people. I mean, their problems were more about the liabilities. Um, and so, as the paper points out, um, successful businesses, um, you know, they're going to come out of this uh, more successful than when they entered it. Um, albeit maybe at a lower valuation, they actually have the opportunity to make many, many multiples on their money um, from even the starting point um, by balancing, by finding that balance, by being able to, to cut costs, but also preserve um, the moat that they have or their competitive advantages that allow them, that will allow them to continue growing um, for a long period of time. So Jeremy, would you say, is this concept new? I mean, I'm- No, I mean, if you look at, I mean, this is kind of what Berkshire Hathaway does. This is what Buffett has always done. I mean, the, the paper again talks about tech, but you could apply this to, to any business. I mean, you just, just take any business that you can think of, um, a traditional business that's been very, very successful over, over a long period of time. And I'm not talking about um, just because it's been alive for, you know, as a public company for 30 years, but who has really crushed the S&P 500 over a 20 or 30 year period. Um, JB Hunt, for example, is a company we've done a lot of work on. So this is an old, uh, it's an old trucking company. I mean, their returns have been incredible since the mid eighties. I mean, the, the, the kager on the, on the stock is, you know, I, I don't remember what the top, maybe it's 10,000% or something. It's unbelievable. So, um, there's a lot of company, any successful company at the end of the day, you, it does need to continue to grow. Um, just keeping up with inflation isn't really good enough. And so this has nothing to do with the size of the business. So whether you're a micro cap or a mid cap or a, a mega cap, you need to be able to grow. And I think the paper points out that, um, growth can decline substantially from, Initially, it's you know 100% a year, 50% a year when the business is new and young, um, and it can go down you know to 15% or 20% and still create monster returns. 
Um, and the reason the returns are can be monstrous and outperform so big is because of the durability of that growth. It's just compounding. It's just compounding that revenue. And I think what the paper also points out is that if you give a business a long enough period of time, revenue is 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 kind of encapsulates all the all the forces of, of financials over time because a business can't stay public if it's just bleeding money just dependent on the capital markets just just puking out um you know shareholder value um you know every quarter every month you know it's not going to stay public for 30 years there's, there's a level of of sustainability that has to happen in a business and ultimately that has to that positive feedback loop is a result of profitability and growth um, and that combination of profitability and growth. So um, although the paper focuses on on revenue as a matrix, and I know a lot of, you know, maybe traditional investors would be like, yeah, but what about profitability? But I think their point is over some period of time, that just takes care of itself. That's, that's kind of an interesting concept right there. So let, let's dig into some of the summaries from this paper that are helping support this point. And I really appreciate you also saying that, you know, these this is a concept that, doesn't just have to apply to tech, you know, software companies, right? This is something that you can really use across your entire. Right. I mean, look, let, let, let's look at C's Candy. You know, the most famous uh, Buffett version of of durable growth. That he, you know, this is this is a company he paid twenty five million for in nineteen seventy two. I think he paid like five or six times uh, EBITDA or something. Um, and he didn't think he got a great deal. He's famous for saying that. And then in the two thousand 12 letter or something or 14 letter uh he talked he said that sees um the, the the box candy business hadn't grown at all in volume so the volumes actually had been flat all that time but the company had produced more than two billion for Berkshire shareholders to be reinvested um and of course since then it's probably produced you know the laws of compounding it's probably produced another couple of billion and it's because at the end of each year the day or the day after christmas or something he um and i could be completely distorting this but at, after christmas they raised the price by six or seven percent of all the of all the all the chocolate so it's the compounding of the durability of that pricing power and obviously maybe this year they would raise it by 15 percent, but it's that um it's that durability of the pricing power, not the unit volume. The unit volume they realized didn't require growth at all when you had such incredible pricing power of the actual product. So yeah, th th this isn't this, this isn't just unique to tech. This is this is you know finance. This is investing. This is just a business concept. But tech again, back to kind of the eye of the storm. Um, I think this is, you know, it's a, it's a good place to at least start to think about what we'd be looking for if we're eye of the storm investors. Um, if we're looking for the company that's going to, you know, or looking for a handful of businesses that's going to really do well or that's potentially uh, really oversold, um, we want to think about these things. We want to think about durable growth. We don't want to just look at valuations. We don't just want to do a screen for price and say, okay, well, um, it's down 90%, so or it's trading for net cash or something. So somehow that's a great deal. Maybe it's a double from here, but if you're looking for the multi-baggers, um, you, you know, you, you're going to think about a business um, more than just, I mean, what's it's going to, what's going to be more important um, than just price is durable growth. 
Very good. So then what would you say are some of the criteria? Let's say, you know, somebody's listening to this, we're putting this out. Everybody's probably listening to this. It's uh, October, I think 13th that we put this out. And they say like, okay, Jeremy, I got you. I'm in it. Durable growth. Love the concept. Read the paper. Great concept. Want to apply it. I want to make a, let's, at a minimum, I want to screen out for what, you know, maybe a, a, a swath of what, quote unquote, our durable growth companies, you know, what are some of the criteria? Yeah, well, the, the paper um, has some interesting examples in here. If I can have the paper actually here. Um, so the paper looks at like the components of the returns of these businesses. Um, so what percentage was multiple expansion? Like I said, what percentage was was um, based on growth, durable growth, net of dilution. And the overwhelming majority um, came from just revenue growth. But they point out, um, so I, I think the first thing to do is look at the history of success of some of the some of the best examples and think about how were they successful and try to use that as a little bit of a filter or a lens by looking at other companies. And one of the more successful outliers, I guess, in this example is Salesforce. And Salesforce was a company, you know, I, I, I definitely didn't follow it back then. But according to this, they were, you know, they were, these, this company was growing at 50 plus percent a year before the financial crisis. And um, that revenue growth was cut down to 20% or something during the financial crisis. Um, they started, they, they laid off staff. Um, they, they were able to hold their margins steady and they were able to maintain market share initially and then start growing market share so um i think you know there the air or the arr the the revenue essentially of the business since ipo um is up like 800x uh, but the stock is up i guess a little less than 70x which is still impressive over a 20-year run but the but the value that was created was not due to necessarily the you know, continuation of the growth and their revenue. I don't think you could predict that. I don't think you could um, ever, you know, just look at a company and be like, yeah, it has to grow at, you know, I, I predict that it's going to grow at, you know, 25% a year, 30% a year, um, because you don't really know how it's going to grow. But I think you can start looking at the quality of the business and say, is management overdoing it, you know, because the paper talks about the challenges that recessions bring on for tech businesses. But these are the same challenges that the recession brings on for all businesses. So some of the examples they talk about are sales cycles become extended, become longer. Okay, that's for all businesses. Um, margins compression, inflation goes up. Okay, that's that's for all businesses. Um, maybe it's you know there's a lot of pressure. It's hard to hard to hire the right people. Okay, that's that's either because you can't afford it or because they're scarce. Um, there's a lot of pressure on margins, um, and then you know there's just a, a lot of difficulty running a business during um, you know during a recession that, that and how the business is responding to that um, is going to tell you how. So there, there isn't a magic formula is the point, I think, of the paper. There is never going to be a magic formula that you can screen for, but you would have to study. You would have to go back and study. Um, you'd have to go back and study Salesforce and say and see that, you know, they were holding the line, that they were not cutting too deep. 
Um, yes, they were firing staff or they stopped hiring, but you'd have to do the work to see that, well, it, it, they can still maintain their competitive position with the staff that they have, you know, um, and they're not losing their focus. And they're using, are they using this opportunity to gain market share because smaller competitors that aren't as well capitalized are falling by the wayside? So that's one thing we want to see with, with our portfolio companies as well. We want to see that they're gaining market share um, and then they're in a superior position because of the cash on the balance sheet or because they're controlled by, by, by you know, a management team that is not just kind of withering away and dying and crawling into a hole during a, during a crisis, but actually really going for it and, and taking advantage of that hole that's blown out um, in, the competitive mar- in the competitive landscape. So um, I think it's, it's really more of a business question and, and business analysis that's very much micro, that's very much business specific and business focused. And it's not a great answer for the kind of investor that wants to hit a button and do a screen and make a very snap judgment call on whether a sector is overvalued or undervalued and look at the past as a proxy for the future. I think, um, you know, you have to kind of find a company that you like or that's in the eye of the storm that you that you're interested in and really dig deep and say, wow, is this thing you know, is this thing becoming stronger oh. as a result oh, or no is doubt. it becoming weaker yeah. as a result? Oh, no doubt. And that's what I meant is like, okay, just yeah, to get yeah. the screen to like kind of get, get started. Right. And then kind of going through that list and say, okay, let me, let me, I got my start. Now I want to go from yeah. here. So, so like, and on that point, I mean, obviously, you know, you want to listen to conference calls and hear kind of any kind of media that yeah. these companies are probably doing. So what are some indicators from either conference calls, transcripts, or, interviews with me um that are uh that that are some things maybe you would want to really hear from management teams when it comes to like okay this is kind of what yeah. i want at least from from one side is at least what you want to hear obviously then there's yeah. but at least what you want yeah to so i'll start by saying like, so i look, went back and looked at some of the companies that i was interested in investing um in and working on you know, kind of eye of the storm companies in, in banks and, and um, construction companies back in 2008. And I couldn't find all of them, but I found some notes and I made a list of the the returns. You know, this was a sector that was down 80 plus percent. And, and I made a list of the companies and ultimately, you know, if you, if you had bought all of them at the bottom, how they fared. And it's a super interesting list. So just thinking about banks, um, you know, some of them like Bank of America were up 1200%. Um, PNC was up 1100%. There were several up 2000%, 1000%, et cetera. But there were actually quite a number of them that were only doubles. Um, there's one that was up only 200% right over the last 13 years. This is from a very, very low base. And it was the same with, with uh, the home builders. Um, there were some that were up you know, barely made it. Um, and then there were others that were up, up 10 plus X. So I guess I would start by saying you can buy the basket and the basket will probably do really well. But if you really want to dive deep, it doesn't take a lot of work to distinguish quality between, you know, for example, like I remember looking at Bank of America kind of back after TARP was introduced 
And I remember David Tepper going on CNBC and like pointing, pointing his finger at the TARP uh, bailout program and arguing with, I don't know, Becky Quick or somebody like, no, don't you see it? Don't you see it? And they were saying, how do you have the confidence to invest? And he said, look, there's this TARP program and, and people still didn't get it. They're like, yeah, but can't Bank of America still go to zero? So yes, it was the TARP program that, that saved Bank of America. But at the end of the day, why did it outperform so much more than many of the other banks below it? Well, it's because it was the quality of the business and it was the quality of the management team and how aggressive they were at cutting costs and, and waking up and saying like, we don't need as many stores, for example. One of the first things they did is they set out on a multiple, you know, two or three year um, uh, period of just closing down branches. And the second thing they did is they turned every single customer, consumer facing employee into a, basically a salesperson. So we don't need any fat. So they trimmed the company down. They focused on wealth management. So high, high return businesses that weren't as dependent on lending because they, I think they knew they weren't going to be as aggressive in lending going forward. And uh, they really just, they became a much higher quality business um, over, over that period of time. And so it was, it wasn't something, you know, you could have identified overnight necessarily. I mean, maybe Buffett did because he made a big investment um, in Bank of America at, at the time. But I think you could look around and, 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 and maybe try to find something that you can grab onto and say, wow, I think, you know, these guys, they seem like I look at the plan. I look at what they're going to try to do. I'm looking at this. I'm looking at the assets they have. I'm looking at the, the, the markets that they want to be in and um and 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 see that they have a chance and and to potentially outperform or be better than um and start following it close so i that's a long-winded way of of you know kind of taking it maybe back to today um to today if i was looking at you know when we're we're very much um in the market of looking we're, we're looking in the eye of the storm today we're looking at um, all kinds of businesses but um the the area that we think might be the most attractive coming out of this is going to be technology businesses because there are it's such a wide variety of, of of companies that are that are out there that have all kind of come down um similar similar to similar levels and within the rubble um you're going to find businesses that have a lot of cash on the balance sheet that um, are controlled by a management team or even a founder or a group of founders that's that are really focused and they're not going to let um, they're not going to, for example, let the business be sold for a discount. Um, the in markets are only growing, are getting more interesting. They may take a big dip, but uh, over the medium term to long term, you can clearly see like, yeah, this isn't going away. Um, so either on the enterprise side or even the consumer tech side, they're in. And so I would start by saying, you know, you could probably do a screen for a lot of the SPAC, you know, asset light SPACs, and you can put them side by side with a company that's been public for, you know, 10 plus years. Maybe it's been around 20 plus years and maybe it was overvalued. Maybe it got, maybe the price got ahead of itself. But now today, look, they're both down, you know, 80 or 90%. They're both trading for, you know, two or three times revenue or, and, and you can imagine a situation where, um, where in a more disciplined environment that we're going into that how each of those businesses would look. 
And so you're starting to see layoffs. You're starting to see companies realize like in all industries, like, wow, we've got stock-based comp. We've got employees. We can't just have our stock go down forever. And so we're going to shift from um, kind of not showing a profit to showing a profit. Um, so how easy is that for that company? So there's companies that are just saying, yeah, we're going to cut uh, 10, 15% of staff. And, and what is the effect on, on the business's financials and on the business itself? So these are the questions I would be, I would be asking. There are businesses that can't support a 15% reduction in their staff um, necessarily overnight. There are businesses that can, that they, they were just bloated, but they're wonderful businesses. Um, software businesses that were just bloated because that was the thing to do. Just, hey, hire, you know, uh, Tom's friend. Uh, he's, he's also a great engineer. Yeah, well, maybe we don't need that engineer anymore. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that the business is a terrible business. So thinking about businesses dynamically and one-off um, more so than just taking a, a bird's eye view of like, hey, this is the multiple and the multiple needs to come down. And until we see gap uh, profitability, we can't buy this thing or still until we see operating margins that are above X, then we can't buy this. But looking to see what is the business doing uh, like Bank of America was if you kind of looked at the plan they laid out in 2009, it was very, very uh, interesting. It was very drastic. Um, in 2010, you know, they really started a whole transformation of the bank. And I guess you could have looked up and said, hey, no, uh, that's that's not, you know, we're not going to bet on that. We're going to wait until after. But you could have looked at the things that they were doing and they were like, okay, we're going to close whatever thousands of branches. We're going to fire a bunch of people. Like, is it really that hard to, to handicap the execution risk around that? So we face something similar today with, 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 with some businesses, at least some technology businesses where it doesn't take a lot of imagination to see that, you know, what the PL would look like if they cut 10 or 15% of their staff. And a lot of them are in the process of doing that. Very good. So, you know, listen, we're, we're a micro cap show here. You know, we bring, we, we cover everything with, more or less with a lot of guests that we have on here, but how would you, would you adjust this concept for, let's say some of our micro cap focused folks that yeah. are listening in right now? Right. Absolutely. So, so microcaps. Um, so this, th what I'm talking about is nothing to do with the size of the business. I mean, if you look back at the eye of the storm invest, you know, eye of the storm investing in 2009, I mean, the majority, I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of companies in the U S in the microcap and nanocap world that were trading for less than cash. I mean, today you've got uh, at least a couple hundred uh, trading for less than cash, but Back then, I remember the screen, you know, there were hundreds, I don't know, 500, 600 of them. Maybe there were even more at, at some peak. And that includes the, the, the really the nano, nano caps, maybe a 5 million market cap. Um, but the story of those businesses. So if you look back at the companies that were the cheapest micro caps back then, and you, and you look at the ones that were, that kind of are still alive today, how did they perform versus whatever index you're using to benchmark yourself. And I think you can kind of see very quickly the differences in quality um, and that valuation only goes so far. So um, the ones that really did well, I'm trying to remember a micro cap that I might've owned um, during kind of the eye of the storm back then. Was it maybe Metafast? 
you know, Meta, maybe it's not a micro cap anymore. Maybe it's a billion plus market cap now, but I remember it being a much, much smaller company um, compared to, and, you know, they ultimately did very well because there was, there was quality, it was a quality business with, with durable growth. Now it's very volatile growth and maybe it's uh, much growing much slower today than it was, you know, back in its heyday, but it was the durability of that growth that mattered. And an alternative, alternative example was a huge mistake that we made as a fund, I think in 2000, maybe 2012, um, we had this idea of, you know, kind of shaking up these micro caps that were really cheap and, and, and forcing them to sell or, or finding a private equity buyer because we just couldn't understand how they screened just so cheap. And one of the targets or the companies that we bought a stake in, a substantial stake in, um, still under 5%, but the company was so illiquid and small that it was, it felt to us like, like we owned 50% of the company. It was called Viacom, V-I-I. I don't even think the business exists anymore. It was a little micro cap trading for less than the real estate and the cash on the balance sheet. And it just looked so cheap. And the founder uh, had invented the CCTV camera, which <laughs> kind of sounds funny to think that, there was this little microcap company that invented a whole sector, but it was still a microcap. And somehow that just went right over my head. All I saw was there was this really cheap company that invented the CCTV camera that had, you know, millions of cameras installed all over a lot in Vegas. And they had this maintenance revenue and it just looked so enticing. It looked like, wow, this should be, there, there's a big arbitrage here to be had. And so we built this position, went to the company and really rattled the cage, uh, called a bunch of investment banks and actually put the company um, into play. They, they tried to uh, sell the company unsuccessfully and I couldn't understand why they weren't selling the company. And it just turned out that the company was just a rapidly melting ice cube. Um, and ultimately they merged with another company that was a similarly melting uh, ice cube. And I don't even think it exists anymore today. Um, and the lesson was, and it was a loss and it was terrible. We spent a ton of time on it, but you know, investors got so excited because they saw this big discount on paper and they owned the real estate and we had a broker do a, an assessment of the of the co company's headquarters in, in upstate New York and it was just exceeded the value that it was being carried out by, you know, 10x or something. And it just had this really fun story to it um, that we went and discovered it. And um, in the end, it was a loser because it was a very low quality business and it didn't matter how cheap it was. It mattered that, I mean, you couldn't liquidate the business fast enough. And that's one of the reasons they, you know, it just didn't work. So um, I think right now you're going to find, if you screen for cheap companies in the microcap land, you will find a lot of companies that are going to be similar to, to VII um, companies that shouldn't have been public. And look, I don't want to name some of the lowest quality companies that I think are low quality companies I've seen because they may turn out not to be low quality companies. And I don't know them well enough to have that kind of judgment with VII. It's a past tense thing. It's something that's already happened. It, it already melted. Um, but there are many, many companies that went public and not necessarily just in tech, um, that are trading for at or less than cash. And when I look at them, I just shake my head and go, oh, this is another, you know, train wreck waiting to happen. So yeah, I guess you could buy a basket of these that have gone down a lot, but spending a little bit of time and thinking about 
um, durable, you know, durable growth. It doesn't need to be high growth. It can be a seized candy situation, which was obviously a, they probably wouldn't be down 80 or 90 percent if it was seized candy. But um, thinking about them in terms of, of durab the durability of the growth um, and what is going to protect that durability and what's going to allow them to be able to come out of this, you know, more valuable than they went into this. Um, and a lot of that's just not going to be available by doing a screen, like I said, or just taking a real snapshot look at the past. It's, it's really more of a deep dive into the company itself. And that's why it is such an exciting time to be an investor. Very good. All right. So, you know, we're about there. And, and one, yeah. my last question for you is, uh, you know, this actually pertains we're, we're our next issue of the magazine is coming out very shortly. And the main theme of this issue happens to be fallen angels you know, and fallen yeah. angel stocks and opportunities there. So, you know, with this idea of durable growth, you know, is there a difference between the idea of the, and this concept of durable growth companies and fallen angels, or is there a ton of overlap? Well, the market we're in right now doesn't, is not distinguishing between durable growth or the potential of a company to, to have durable growth um, as a result of, you know, them becoming more efficient in this downturn, it, it is not distinguishing at all between the two. So I'd say there, you know, everything is down. So um, you, you're going to have gems, really amazing gems in there. They're going to have babies thrown out with the bathwater, as they say. So um, just because something is down a lot doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to mean revert and go back. But I think there are many examples like like this paper highlights um of companies that are down a lot that are really are fallen angels that will will emerge stronger that are repositioning themselves to emerge stronger and compete albeit maybe a lower at a lower growth rate but um that are positioning themselves to be stronger and those in fact are the fallen angels because they will come back and they will come back much much stronger and probably make multiples um multiples you know you'll probably be able to earn multiples in your money and 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 recover everything even from the the peak uh, because that's what this paper points out is that if you bought the best companies um during the financial crisis you made this great return but in the end they ultimately um they they ultimately became more valuable much more valuable they, they became incredible investments even if you had bought them back at the peak time and um, that that's that's what's great. I mean, for all the overvalued dot com stocks, um, you name them, you know, um, the, the, the higher quality ones, ultimately, even if you had bought them at the absolute peak, um, Microsoft or bookings or, you know, they, they ultimately they ultimately, you know, were, were great investments. Um, you probably don't want to wait around. You probably don't want to you probably most people weren't willing to wait around in you know, a decade or whatever to get their money back but in the end because they had durable growth um you know the money wasn't lost definitely absolutely all right well you know jeremy i think that's a great place to end it you know um any final thoughts on this topic what folks should you know think about you know that maybe your, your parting thoughts before before yeah i mean i'd say now is really the time to to take a hard look at that companies and um try to distinguish between the long-term winners um from from this point going forward and not try to get so 
caught up in and just screening for prices um, because you'll probably do well if you if you buy the, a basket of things that are down a lot um, over the next few years but um, you'll probably do a lot better uh, if you're able to just distinguish a little bit between um, quality and price so um, yeah it's it's not easy but it's it's I guess what what we love and and what probably what all your viewers, including myself, it's it's what we live for. It's what we love. Amen. So, amen to that. So from from that perspective, it's a great time to be a public company investor. Yeah, like don't look at your portfolio. <laughs> just, just just look for you know just look at new ideas <laughs> or the ones that you're really passionate about that are done. Um, so well, well right, Jared, right, right. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, thank, thanks so much again for joining me today. You know, where can folks go and find more information on you, follow you on social, the whole Yeah, jdpcap.com. If you're a qualified or accredited investor, you can sign up uh, to receive our updates. Um, so. Very good. All right. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much yeah. for joining me today. Really do appreciate okay. it. Good luck. Stay safe. Uh, yeah. Thanks for, having, thanks for having me. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.